So I think that there are three things that are missing in quite a bit of evangelicalism. And that's, I think, to approach this time well, I think you have to have humility, curiosity, and humility plus curiosity leads to empathy. Continue this theological discussion in a car or in a jailhouse with cops. Welcome to Everything Just Changed, where we envision a post culture war church and equip leaders who just can't even anymore. Welcome back to Everything Just Changed. Bryce Hales and Brad Edwards are here, and this is sort of going to be a bonus episode following up from our previous episode where we talked about Michael Graham's article, The Six-Way Fracturing of Evangelicalism, that was posted on Mere Orthodoxy a few months back. Brad, we had just a, a great conversation around Michael's article, and the response to both the article and that episode has been incredible. I think that that um, episode of our podcast has gotten more listens than anything else you and I have done, just the two of us. Yeah. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so we're really excited because today Michael Graham is joining us to talk about that article. So, um, Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Your writing, I think, has really just kind of captured a lot of what's going on in this cultural moment that we're living through and has struck a a nerve with a lot of people in the church, uh, pastors, elders, lay leaders. And so we're really excited to talk with you today. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, glad to be here. And as you know, when Skylar and I first kind of stumbled upon uh, the episode that where you guys were processing this, it felt like, oh my gosh, there's nobody who really that we've kind of interacted with yet that we felt like more deeply comprehended what we were trying to say. So <laughs> that's so awesome. I, I, I'm here selfishly just to like, <laughs> feel like you guys are, you guys just, in, just our dialogue about this. I'm going to learn stuff uh, myself. That's going to help me. Hmm. Cool. Well, I know, so I'm here for selfish reasons. <laughs> awesome. Well, I mean, we're, you're here for our selfish reasons too, because like Bryce said, it, it was crazy helpful. Like I, I had people, uh, pastors reach out to us and say, Hey, just want to let you know, I'm sending this podcast episode and that article to like all of our elders and staff and lay leaders, because we need to have a conversation around like what in the world is going on within our church. And this actually has more explanatory power than pretty much anything they've read. And so I'm, I'm curious, just, you know, when you said that you felt like we uh, more fully comprehended what you were trying to say, what, I want to ask it what both in the positive and the negative, like what makes you say that in terms of like what part of our conversation was like, yes, this is the thing I'm trying to say, but also like what in the other podcast interviews you've done and the other feedback you've gotten, like what, are there any themes or like just not missing, uh, not quite getting what you're trying to say that, that might actually be a reflection of what you were writing about? Yeah. So, okay. I think what you guys, why you guys understood what we're trying to do and what we're trying to say probably more acutely than maybe others is I think probably your context in Colorado Mm. and our, you know, my context Mm. in Orlando. And, and when Skylar and I were writing this together, um, we were both in Orlando at the same time. Now he's in a, you know, in Oxford, Mississippi, a college town. Mm. Um, So I think, Um, those contexts and those vantage points um, and kind of, I think everybody, you know, Skylar, myself, and you guys are probably in the three range. Mm -hmm. And so 
I think it's threes who probably feel the the tension of the fracturing most acutely hmm. um, because we're witnessing those who are fives and sixes, and that's really sad and heartbreaking as folks are deeply deconstructing and or completely leaving the faith, um, or at least certainly um, dechurching significantly. You know, and dechurching takes, you know, three different contours, belief, behavior, and belonging. So typically we think of dechurching as just, you know, the ending of the belonging piece, but you can dechurch in terms of your beliefs and you can dechurch in, in your behaviors as well. Mm. So, oh, yeah. there's, you know, there's different contours to that, but, you know, threes really feel that tension because we have probably a lot of friends who are fours and a lot of friends who are twos. Mm-hmm. And on the four end of things, sometimes the critique that we'll, that we re- receive on our left-hand side is that we're not doing enough or, we're not comprehensive enough in our concerns, or we're not voicing voicing our concerns using the same voice or the same affect um, mm-hmm. that fours would. Although, depending on the issue, there could still probably be a lot of proximity, and or and we might even you know be in the same place in terms of critique. It's just that a lot of times that the, the affect, and I think a lot of threes have not probably experienced trauma with an uppercase T, and mm-hmm. so. You know, you take a three, you add uppercase T trauma, they remain in the faith, and they're probably now a four. Right. But I think one challenge is, you know, I think you guys understood just the, the tension with fours of like kind of always feeling like it's never, you're leaning into something, but it never seems to be enough. Hmm. And then, you know, the tension on the right is, you know, with, with the threes have with twos is apathy. Threes often experience twos as being apathetic to some of the concerns that that there might be around particularly issues of the Imago Dei, everything except, say, abortion, Mm -hmm, you know, in the contours of pro-life as it pertains to um, uh, anti-abortion. That's like the one, the one time that threes and twos can, you know, kind of agree on concerns and have a similar amount of vigor and energy. And then with respect to ones, threes often experience um, ones with, how do I say this delicately? (laughs) Uh, it, it's a aggra- it, it's aggressive. Okay? <laughs> the concerns that come from ones are are mm. often felt quite aggressively, yeah. and so threes have probably the one of the more interesting vantage points to the fracturing of evangelicalism, because twos, you know, they're not feeling the fracturing as much because the majority of uh, American evangelicals or white white American evangelicals are twos. They might feel like ones are a little a little bit fundamentalist and a little bit uptight for them on certain mm-hmm. things or a little narrow. Mm-hmm. And they might experience threes as like, well, all right, you know, but eh, that's not my, you know, those aren't those aren't my folks. You know, all right, mm-hmm. I, you know, they'll, they'll give you a hearing or whatever. And then twos experience fours is like, you know, get this megaphone out of my ear, you know, like <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to hear about these problems, you know. Right. Like, is it really as bad as what you're saying? You know? Mm-hmm. And so you know, I, so I think um, I think the article and the follow-up conversations have most re- resonated with people who are in the 2.5 to about 3.9 range, and so I think that's why you know Scott and I felt like you really kind of deeply comprehended um, what we were you know what we were trying to do. It's probably helpful to say the numbers you're referencing, we kind of broke those down in our previous episode, and obviously you did in your article. So for people who are listening, if you don't know what we're talking about, 
go back and read the article or, or listen to the previous episode before. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Definitely pause and listen to that. Yeah. And yeah. Come, back, come back up back here. So I, I'm really curious about the, the three, the neo-evangelical that it sounds like we kind of all would identify as being in that camp, which maybe just to summarize is probably doctrinally evangelical, but aware of a lot of the cultural concerns of, of fours, fives, and sixes. To, to kind of paint with broad brush strokes there. The, the three seems like a really unique position to be in or a really rare position to be in, maybe is a better way to say it. Does it, does it seem that way to you? I mean, I feel like some of this, the, the relationship between culture and theology actually feels really clear to me. And I'm confused why when I look at people either to the right or to the left of me, we're having such problems understanding each other hmm. yeah so it's, it's being a three is a really unsafe place to be it's consent to Amen. basically it's, a, it's consent to a three-front war okay perpetual three-front war okay mm. so you're dealing with people who are deconstructing beyond a level that is healthy you know in the kind of the floor 4.1 plus range mm-hmm. and then you're dealing with the kind of aggressiveness um, and vitriol that can come from kind of the 1.5 and minus crowd. Then you, and then we have the normal problems of the world, flesh and devil, right? <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. being a three is consent to, you know, to this perpetual three front war. And there's no, there's no tribal safety, right? You have a couple organizations that kind of overlap with the three world, you know, yeah, Christianity today probably lives in like the 2.5 to 4 range. Tries. TGC lives in like the 2 to 3.2 range. Right, yeah. You know, you know, we're all in the Acts 29 network, and there's a little bit of overlap there, you know, in Acts 29, um, mm-hmm. particularly Acts 29 2.0, if you're familiar with the yeah. you know, 1.0, 2.0 delineations. Definitely. So, but it's like, it, there's no like... But there's no like necessarily like a place on like the theological cultural map to just kind of put, yeah, you know, like oh here's the here's the flag for you yeah. know for threes. I mean, it's interesting. I, I often have used the you know that the description of feeling like we're getting hit from both sides. But the three front war, yeah, oh, that, yeah, that, that makes that that's makes validating. Sense. <laughs> yeah, that's super yeah. validating because I, I mean. It, kind of on a related note, just even to zoom out from that article and, and just point out how it is stunning to me when you realize that what you're articulating, these, these cultural fractures are now more defining and more concrete or divisive delineating than theological positions. And, and just the, just, and, and that three point three front war part, I like, it hit me the other day, like, man, I really wish somebody would ask me about the problem of evil again. Like, can we can we please get back to theological questions? Like, that's what I actually went to seminary for. Like, I th- this is hard. Gosh, that that leads me into one of the questions I've been really itching to ask because I, I've done just enough writing to 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 recognize uh, an article that has had a lot of really good stuff that had to be cut out in order to keep it focused like yours was. 
And you mentioned early on in the article that you talked to several dozen pastors and and got their their feedback on and asked them questions. And that's their their input is is in many ways what formed this article. What else can you tell us about what you learned in those conversations? You know, like like what was surprising, and also especially, did you talk to anyone who felt like they were successfully navigating these these fractures? And would you please give us their phone number? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So there's three very different groups, you know, I'm kind of connected with almost on a, a monthly or more basis, right? Mm-hmm. Two groups are here in Orlando. And then another group is people who, all around the country who run pastoral residency programs. The residency program group is about, there's about 25, 30 of us. Mm-hmm. And so that, that would include mainliners um, and evangelicals, most of whom would like be in the two to four range. And then we have our local Acts 29 cohort, which would be probably in the two to 3.5 range. And then um, another group of pastors who are, who are concerned about spiritual formation in our city. Mm-hmm. And particularly, you know, what does it look like uh, for spiritual formation among millennial men? And so that group probably is in a is probably in the 1.8 to 3.2 range. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I mean it's just like a really interesting each each one of these things is like really interesting petri dish to just kind of like yeah. you know talk and you know I'm a, I'm analytical and um, I have a background in math and you know used to build build mathematical models for the stock market uh, when I was younger. Uh, I'm a reverse engineer, so I'm always just kind of like listening to like what are the problems that people are having in mm-hmm. their context, and what are they trying to solve. And so, mm-hmm. when when you you know as when you're doing science, you're always interested in 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 having a larger data set, and when especially when those data sets don't speak to each other, right? Mm. So you know I've been listening to people you know at least for the last eighteen months just kind of processing ministerial angst and just kind of asking myself of like, okay, what is going on here? Yeah. And after a while, you know, you start, you know, you have, you know, I mean, Skylar and I talk and um, same with our, you know, our teaching pastor here, Jim, Jim Davis. And, you know, we, we talk about these things all the time. I'm like, what is this? What, what am I looking at here? What, you know, what is going on? Mm-hmm. You know, cause these are invisible things, but they're realities, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why this article has resonated with so many people is there's this invisible structure, you know, these tectonic plates that we can't see and they're moving and they're grinding on one another, you know, and, you know, many of those tectonic plates are, are pushing together and forming mountain ranges that are causing, you know, people on one, on one tectonic plate and another tectonic plate to have this huge barrier. Um, now this geographic and, and psychographic barrier in between. One yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I think that's where just kind of like the genesis of, you know, all these different kind of things comes from. I think the people who have been best positioned for where we're at in our cultural moment are people who already found their prophetic voice and are comfortable with their prophetic voice before, particularly before 2016, but really um, even more so, you know, before COVID year, before, you know, this last election cycle, you know? So I think if you had like real clarity on, you know, what is your prophetic voice, whether that's you're very clearly type A, type B, or type C. Hmm. I think those are the people who are just kind of weathering, you know, hmm. this fracturing, I think more. That's really interesting. More acutely. 
one of the big kind of ahas as I was working through your article is just the difference between the theological concerns and the cultural concerns. And like I said in the previous episode, I think it's pretty clear that fours and fives have privileged cultural concerns above theological concerns. I would say that ones and twos are kind of doing the same thing, even though they couch it in theological language. Does that does that like make sense with the way you're thinking about this? It feels like those kind of cultural fault lines, one of the things that's so strange about the moment we're living through in the church is that the church has allowed kind of the cultural fault lines to take precedence over some of the theological, you know, grounding and rootedness of our, of our various traditions. And, and so in light of that, you know, issues around evangelicalism or, or issues around individualism and distrust of institutions is just adding fuel to the fire. And then there's social media on top of that. So uh, thoughts on, on that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're looking at a horseshoe and actually not a left, right spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a left side of the horseshoe and a right, right side of the horseshoe. Okay. So if you picture that and let's say the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the empty part of the horseshoe, the, you know, where the space is between them, if that's either polarity, you know, your ones, one to 1.5s and then your, you know, your fives and sixes on the other side, what's really driving a lot of, you know, those polarities, I think is secularism, you know? Mm-hmm. So for one end of the, the horseshoe, it's the secular left. On the other end of the horseshoe, it's the secular right. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, all you have to do is like, kind of look back at, I don't know if it was 2017 or 2018, the, the Charlottesville situation, mm-hmm. the, the quote, unite the right rally, right? So, you, you know, and I don't want to, these are not political statements. These are just cultural observations, right? But you had two groups of people, the alt-right, you know, kind of being the larger heading, which is a complex way to, you know, look at the complex different groups of kind of white supremacists, white nationalists, proud boys, three percenters, oath keepers, you know, mm-hmm. the whole nine yards. And then kind of Antifa being the large heading on the other end of that. But I'm sure there were kind of complex other subgroupings or whatever to that. But you look at these two different groups, they're actually both authoritarian. <laughs> yes. They both have like yeah. deep, deep commitments. They're, both of their commitments are rooted in, in some way, shape or form in identity politics. You know, so for Antifa, it's, you know, um, a commitment to economic identity politics, you know, of Marxism. And then on the right, you know, you've got the racial uh, identity politics associated with all of that. And so both groups are willing to be um, at least on some level violent. Obviously, in that particular instance, you know, the violence was a little bit probably a little bit more one sided on the on the secular right end of things. At the end of the day, you just kind of like if you squint and kind of look at this event, it's like, am I looking at this? You know, is there much distance between these two groups? You know, no, I've been thinking a lot about how much the when we so the table, our church is five years old now. And when we first started, which by the way, we launched weekly services two Sundays after the 2016 election. It's awesome. been like an, it, like we don't have an understanding of church that didn't have that in the background overshadowing everything, right? But even before then, it it felt like the year leading up to that, there it switched from the kind of left and right divide being the biggest chasm to overcome to the difference between you know, whether you saw society or community functioning in a pluralistic way versus an illiberal way. 
Yes. And that has just become so much more true. And it's been fascinating seeing what kind of bedfellows you make now because you find strange allies between left and right classical liberalists or those who think that like a, a pluralistic society is the healthiest society and you're on the same team in principle, even if in policy, you are dramatically uh, coming from it at, at different angles. But like that has been really interesting. And I feel like that has some serious implications for just ministry and how we're contextualizing things. But that horseshoe, that that's a fantastic analogy. I mean, the, the horseshoe analogy, I mean, we haven't used that, that like image before, but Brad, that feels a lot like what we're talking about when we've been talking about the king and kingdom categories and that there are some who prioritize the king without the kingdom and others who prioritize the kingdom without the king. And you, they kind of end up circling back around towards each other in a kind of a, this like individualistic identity formation machine that tends towards fundamentalism of one variety or another. Yeah. And at, at the risk of like patting ourselves on the back, what you said about identity <laughs> is like, yeah. I, I'm just like, I instantly went back to what you said about the three front war. If you're a three, the only way to mm. stay in that space is if there is a, a, a security in your dignity, value and worth that is not getting tossed to and fro mm. by the winds of these cultural massive cultural changes and that is uh, like it's not like hey we're doing it great it's that's why it's so freaking hard because you're getting buffeted by it all the time so man that that connects a lot of dots for me that's super helpful michael i'm curious if as you think about this is there like an, an analogy to a different time in church history to the moment that we're that we're living through it feels like one thing that feels different to me is is the extent to which kind of both sides have infected the church. And so kind of cultural concerns on left and right have taken precedent over theological mooring. I mean, is there an analog that you can think of in church history? Or maybe another way to answer ask that question is, is how does that affect the way that we approach ministry going forward now when we've got this three-front war? I think Jesus threaded this needle really well. Um, in between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The obvious, the yeah. obvious answer, Jesus, okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I do think that there, there are some interesting analogs with, that, that are worth exploring with respect to the Pharisees and Sadducees, right? And I think you guys maybe touched on this um, in your episode. So I think that that's a thread that's like worth expanding and kind of pulling on. I'm not as much of, you know, New, New, yeah. Te New Testament scholarship is not my sweet spot, so I'm hesitant to drill down too more than that, too much more than that. Maybe yeah. somebody else, you know, who has more expertise. I mean, that. so I mean, what what do you think needs to change within kind of white evangelicalism in order to respond to some of these cultural divisions? Are, are there any, you know, yeah. are there any like practical? I mean, um, issues around spiritual formation, or even frankly, just how we approach preaching as pastors, it, it seems like it, we're so polarized, we're so divided that uh, uh, trying to address some of the concerns on one side, you end up getting whacked by kind of the response of the, of the whataboutism on the other side. Yeah. I mean, how do we... Yeah, maybe maybe one way of asking is just... move forward? Yeah, yeah like how in, in making these dots, putting these dots on the board and then connecting them in your article, 
like what are the practical implications? Like how are you considering changing your own ministry every, in yeah, your everyday yeah. context? Like what do, what do we need to be rethinking more upstream than we are used to? Yeah, yeah, great question. Okay, so I think that there are three things that are missing in quite a bit of evangelicalism. I think particularly in the like a, in the two range that I think need to be kind of grafted in or rewired. And that's I think to approach this time well, I think you have to have humility, curiosity, and the humility plus curiosity leads to empathy. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to even get into the empathy wars, you know, but like, it's <laughs> foolish. Um, but, you know, humility plus curiosity equals empathy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and not just empathy, but also just lament. Because I think a lot of folks, maybe it's just because you lack proximity, and maybe you got to say proximity plus humility. You know, I'm assuming proximity here. Proximity plus humility plus curiosity equals empathy um, and or lament. And so I think that's just part of this is there's a lack of translators, okay? Because twos need threes to translate fours, Mm. okay? Twos need threes to translate fours because twos can't hear fours over their affect, okay? Mm. And And they tune them out. But they would benefit from having more proximity to one another. And, you know, I think, uh, I think it's, this is from Tim Keller, who more or less said that all forms of defensiveness should always be interrogated. If we would be, we would all be better off if anytime we feel a defensive impulse in it, we trade defensiveness for curiosity. Mm. That's probably the number one thing I've learned in counseling over the years, um, personal counseling for myself. We can just trade defensiveness for curiosity. We would all be better off. And so I think that those are some things. Now, getting very nitty gritty, okay? Um, I'm working on developing this idea of um, what I've called an information diet, okay? The information diet is the sum, is the total sum of all of the things that you consume that are, informa- you know, of information, okay? So the podcast, you know, social media scrolling, um, uh, all the television shows, radio, uh, TV, cable news. These, these ancient you know, things yeah, with lots books. of pages, books. Books yeah. might fit in there. <laughs> oh, yeah. All, all, <laughs> yeah, all of that, the sum total of all that. And because I think it's like, okay, if, if we have a really, really involved church member and they're at Sunday school and main church, you know, sitting under the preaching of the word, and they're in community group, that's four hours that we have with them in a given week. Mm-hmm. But let's yeah. say on a given day, there's three hours worth of other content it's part of that we would label the information diet. Okay. Well, that's 21 hours versus four. And so like now, not every, we don't always, I think here's another idea I want to introduce. And that's um, the multiple, the influence multiplier or influence coefficient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Every person that you interact with, I think you either unconsciously or subconsciously give them an influence coefficient or influence multiplier. Let's say you really respect somebody, okay? You have a hero. Mm. You probably are, are being formed in your person three to 10 times per unit of time versus an average person. You know, I Senator Tim Keller's preaching. He helps me, you know, connect this, this, and that dot. That was probably worth, you know, 
three hours, you know, 10 hours worth of time under, you know, of, of yeah. you know, scrolling, <laughs> you know, you know, scrolling something or listening to something else. Okay. So I think, you know, you have probably five different categories of influence coefficient, you know, somebody who's highly influential to you, someone who's influential to you, someone who's average, someone whose influence is near zero, neither positive nor negative. And then you have people in your life who everything they say makes you want to like do the exact opposite. Okay. So those five categories, A, B, C, D, and E. Right. And so I think what happens is like you can, you as a, somebody's pastor, you could be an A to them where, you know, they're really valuing, you know, what you're saying. And let's say you're, you know, an hour of your sermon is like worth five hours of their average information diet. But mm -hmm. at the end of the day, they still got, you know, yeah. 20, 30 hours of other content that they're consuming. And, you know, and the, I, I, so I think I still, there has to be a way for people to become more cognizant of how their informa information diet is changing them while it's changing them and to to get some level of meta understanding of okay let me actually peel the veil back on my influence multipliers in my life like who who do i take really seriously because that's a spiritual exercise like how you price you know how you price your relationships and how you price influence is really 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 important because therein lies wisdom right you know yeah. it takes a lot of wisdom to know which voices, you know, are helping you and helping your soul and helping you in becoming more Christ-like in your whole person and which, which voices or which mediums or which, which things are actually, you know, are actually harming you yeah. and are, um, are assailing God's image in you. So well, those would be some things. So, I've built, I've built something to help do this. So yeah, so I was going to say, so I, I would love to hear you like apply that because I mean, I, I feel like you just articulated in a far more nuanced way what I've been thinking about, especially in terms of children's ministry and what what um, parents are expecting to happen as a result of 75 minutes a week <laughs> in their children's lives on Sunday morning versus the way they are formed the rest of the week. How how would you actually like unpack how you would see applying the information diet? Well, I think the first thing is like people have to begin to be aware of what is changing them while it's changing them. Hmm. Okay, but my experience is on either on either ends of the horseshoe. Like there's a real lack of awareness for for those who are like drinking deeply from the secular right or drinking deeply from the secular left. There's a real lack of awareness of what things, how things are shaping them while it's shaping them. Okay. So part of the goal of these things is making the invisible visible, making the subconscious conscious. So I think that's a key, a key part of spiritual formation here now is what is shaping you? How is it, how is it shaping you? And why are you letting it shape you? Hmm. Okay. So I think those are some, some key things. So I built a, curriculum called formation groups, which is basically three or four um, same gendered people. It's only 10 weeks and just asks a lot of questions that basically try to make the invisible and unconscious visible and conscious so that we can be at least cognitive, <laughs> um, cognitively aware of what's, of what's happening to us while it's mm -hmm. happening to us and gain, gaining a little bit of altitude 
as to what to do with all of that and and how to you know uh, judo that into <laughs> more Christ likeness. That's what we're working on, kind of you know in the R and D lab, if that makes sense. I mean, that's that's so fascinating yeah. because my my job title is pastor of spiritual formation. I'm thinking a lot about how we're doing that work of formation and and developing curriculum around that. And I think that, you know, in trying to just do the basics of helping people read the Bible and pray, we've I've seen a lot of fruit in that, but I've also, the, the curriculum that I've used that I've really appreciated Pete Scazzaro's Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, mm-hmm. it's been far more effective than anything I've seen. And I would say it's been about 50% effective. That, that seems like <laughs> a really bad. high number. It's not bad yeah. at all. It seems like a really high number, but gosh, one out of two people. But I think what you're talking about there, some people it just bounces off. And I think it's less about, you know, the Bible not working in people's lives than it is sort of comparing the influence of of the Bible in your life to the influence of some of these other voices. Well, and even as... And just bringing awareness around that is a... Well, yeah, especially, and, and I think that awareness is especially important because it felt like gosh, I don't know, probably once again, about five or six years ago, it switched from like when, it, for example, when I was first uh, an assistant pastor at a church, you could give someone a Bible reading plan and um, they would grow in their biblical literacy by going through it and it would be super helpful and encouraging. Now you could give them the same plan and they could actually use it. <laughs> it's not that they just won't use it, but if even if they do use it, there seems to be a hermeneutical barrier. Like we don't, like our lens has shifted such that we're not aware of how much uh, that influence and that information diet is actually influencing the, our interpretive lens. And so we can read the same scripture mm-hmm. and actually not, we're, we're asegeting it without even knowing it. Like we, we are importing like our individualism, and all of the the ways that we have been formed outside of that sitting such that even if you're reading scripture, you're actually, we don't know how to even read it anymore because we're shaped by like, you know, 280 character tweets and, and, and interpreting those instead of like something that requires, as you said earlier, a humility and a curiosity toward the text itself, not just other people that, that says like, I want to understand this and can't you know, I have to question my assumptions. I have to be aware of what I'm bringing into this. That skill seems to be like one of the biggest defining challenges of post-Christian culture. Please fix that for us. (laughs) (laughs) Bryce has got a couple more questions, but I think the last question I really want to dig into that, that Bryce and I have been really wrestling with this. And I think this is probably like one of the biggest questions that I'll anyone reading the article, if they're not asking, they should be, which is, this is a great kind of cultural roadmap for understanding how to contextualize ministry, how to contextualize the gospel when it comes to preaching, church planting, you name it. Like you can use the type A, B, C, like which one is a better fit for your cultural context, which one lines up more with, with your neighbor's perspectives and cultural affinities. All that is great. How do we live in this tension of contextualizing in ways that resonate and that are that are operating out of wisdom, but not allowing these boundaries, these cultural boundaries to be defining of our fellowship. In other words, like, and maybe giving an example would be helpful. Like everybody's been listening to the Rise of Mars Hill podcast 
And in episode two, he's talking about how the baby boomers and the seeker-sensitive growth, church growth movement, all of that mm. has created basically a series of chain like reactions to each one, Gen X and Mars Hill, Driscoll. But how do we not just keep perpetuating that same reactivity down the line culturally? How do we not just have another culture war at the on the other side of you know, okay, we've contextualized, but now we've actually defined the church and who is included along cultural lines instead of our union with Christ. How are you navigating that tension? What, how do we not just accept these terms, I guess, and, and just give up reaching if we're a three reaching ones or sixes? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think the threading of the needle is perpetual, right? In Jesus's day is the Pharisees versus the Sadducees and threading that needle. Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the, the 1940s in the American context, you know, you had Gay and um, Carl F.H. Henry, you know, kind of threading the needle between fundamentalism and liberalism, you know. And so, you know, I think I would, Bryce asked the question basically to this end, you know, earlier in the in the episode, we're just kind of rehashing what mm -hmm. already occurred in the 20th century, you know. It's just mm -hmm. that, you know, the fundamentalism looks a little bit more like ones today and, you know, the liberalism looks a little bit like you know, 4.1 plus, you know, it's not like they were necessarily, you know, Akengay and Carl F.H. Henry were necessarily dealing with like LGBTQ stuff, but it's like the animating underlying things are, are still pretty similar. And so mm -hmm. I think this is, it's just cyclical, you know, I don't know if these are every 50 year events, every hundred year events that basically you, your polarities need to be, I don't know, for lack of a better word, um, trimmed or pruned. <laughs> um, uh, but I think, I think these things are probably with us in perpetuity. Now, that being said, I don't think the point is to give up on anybody, you know, I'm not interested mm -hmm. in shedding anybody. And I think your question, you know, relational proximity and relational intimacy is really important. You want to have relational intimacy across the entire spectrum. I don't yeah. want to reject anybody you know, because of, you know, where they land on those different things. Granted, where someone else is might impact the amount of relational intimacy that is wise, mm. you know, and not, not necessarily every relationship is co-equal in terms mm -hmm. of how much of yourself you give, you know, in, in a particular scenario. But I do think that, you know, relational intimacy is key and not, you know, not just cutting yourself off you know, like, oh, I'm only going to relate with threes or Man. I'm only going to relate in the spectrum. But I do think that, you know, where other people are, it, it does influence, you know, how much relational intimacy might be wise in a particular scenario, well, particularly that, if you have a background with abuse or any of those different kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, and that's, gosh, that, that actually, mm -hmm. like, kind of gets to the why of what feels like this cycle being pretty different from previous cycles in that, that relational intimacy, it was culturally normative. It didn't matter whether what part of the spectrum, left, right, or in, in between, we had a relational intimacy within institutions. And it, that was a place where you could work some of those things out. They were kind of refuges, refuges from the kind of winds of cultural change in the outside world. You could retreat into there and find and, and, and do that in a place that, that felt a little safer. But with the increasing skepticism of institutions, it feels like we're at a tipping point that combined with social media being a counterfeit for those institutions, like it feels like the, the, and gosh, this, this just went to like 
10 exponents over the course of the pandemic, but like the opportunities we have for, for the same kind of relational intimacy are a fraction of what they used to be. And we're, we're like, it takes a lot more kind of psychological, spiritual energy and effort to, to, to do it where there is that opportunity now. And so I think what's, what I, gosh, that's why I, I really appreciate your optimism and I hope you're, I hope you're right that, that there's going to be that pruning that, that, that kind of gets us back on track. And I'm sure every generation said, well, it's harder now than it ever has been before because of the radio or whatever else. But <laughs> they, it's so interesting how many kind of different factors are coalescing at the same time in the midst of this. So the, the way I think about like where we're at today in our current cultural moment is the animating concerns that people have that they're asking about Jesus. You know, if you guys are familiar with John Frame, he has the normative, the situational, and the existential. Yep. An, easier, <laughs> an easier way to, you know, kind of unpack yeah, that. We'll be talking about that in the episode that will come out the week after this. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay, good. All right, good, good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... So with with that, you know, kind of it kind of roughly correlates to head, heart, and hands, you know, yeah. um, thoughts, emotions, and uh, and community. And so, as I think about that, the, the questions that were largely being asked in the 20th century were were normative questions, questions about mm. truth, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You know, problem of evil, the reliability of the Bible, inerrancy, you know, these kinds of things. In in the 21st century, people are asking. Um, questions that are situational and existential. In other words, is Jesus good? Mm-hmm. And is Jesus beautiful? Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I think that's where a lot of like, w- when you're talking about like one, 1. 1.5 and below, I think there are probably, um, there's a lack of relational proximity to people who are asking non-normative questions. And so if you don't have, if you're not embedded in a community where people are asking, is Jesus good and is he beautiful? You're probably thinking what, what's wrong with all of these, you know, people on either coast, right? Hmm. Because nobody in my context is asking those kinds of questions. It's like, okay, good. Like it's fine to have a normative, put your normative foot for, you know, foot forward. And so I've got a category for that, but I think, um, if you're in a tier two or tier one city, or probably even a tier three city or in a college town, the questions that people are asking are situational and existential questions. Yeah. Is, Jesus, mm-hmm. is Jesus good and is he beautiful? And they want to know those those answers first because, you know, there's in the 20th century, we had a kind of a two chapter gospel. You know, we have, you know, uh, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, right? But in the you know, chapter one, creation, chapter two, fall, chapter three, redemption, chapter four, consummation. But in the 20th century, we had a two chapter gospel by and large within evangelicalism. And that was chapters two and three, fall, Mm -hmm. redemption, problem, solution. Okay. Very linear, um, very normative centric. But the reality is, is what we're looking at in the 21st century is people on either polarity, I think in some ways, they're looking for a form of utopianism, right? So if you look, go, if we go back to Charlottesville, um, you know, the utopianism of Antifa is a kind of economic and probably also ecological utopian, utopian vision. Mm-hmm. And then on the right, the utopian vision is racial or ethnic. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, both are obviously counterfeit, blah, blah, blah. Um, but they're actually, secularism is looking for utopia. 
And these are questions that are situational and existential. And so the 21st century is, expo is ex exploring and exploiting the stuntedness of Christian theologies on the situational mm. and the existential perspectives. In other words, our doctrine of the Imago Dei has been exposed as being underdeveloped, okay? Same with our biblical anthropology, it's underdeveloped, okay? Mm. There's a lot more than, you know, and you think about like seminaries and, and even like academic institutions, they're built on top of scholarship happening under the normative perspective, yeah. okay? Yeah. okay? And there's not, there aren't as many channels for, you know, thinking through these things. This is why public wow. theology has become more of a thing. Mm -hmm. And this is why you're starting to see an acad you know, an academia, like channels, for, rails for people to run on, on some of these things. So wow. I think aesthetics and ethics are critical. Um, if, if evangelicalism is not known in the middle of the 21st century for uh, major developments, particularly in the West, and particularly in North, the, the North American version of the West. Yeah. We're not known in, known in the North American version of the West. Because this, this whole conversation is, you know, this is very insulated from global Christianity. Totally. Almost, nothing, almost yeah. nothing that we're talking about has any relevance outside yeah. the United States or Canada. But um, so, you know, let me tip my hat to that. But I, I, if we're not known for developments in ethics and aesthetics here in the middle of the 21st century, then we're going to have real problems um, and, yeah, you know, in the, in the 22nd century in, in North America and beyond. That's so good. You just connected so many dots. Wow. I was going to try to land this, but I got to ask one more question because I, it seems like, so I, I always want to think about the, so what, and so, so, so what do we do? And it, it feels, it feels to me like a big part of the solution is that pastors uh, not exclusively, but as some of the people who who kind of have primary responsibility for stewarding the institution of the church, humanly speaking. And like you said, we we are trained in seminary through the the normative lens only. That spiritual formation has to be uh, become a much more primary part of our training. Mm -hmm. Because we've got to be able to sort of hold the tension of people who, you know, are not just like in a slightly different place than we are. If I'm a three, I've got to be able to hold on to the, the like the anxiety of the twos and the fours, but I've also got to hold them together in some ways. And I can't really do that with only the, you know, the hammer of the normative perspective. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, I, I, does that make sense? Are you, are you following me with me at all? I, I think so. I mean, I, I think. I, I guess at some point I'm wondering if the ability to hold together or, or just like maintain relationship with people who deeply disagree with one another comes down to who we are in Christ experientially and situationally hmm. far more than it does with my ability to articulate the correct doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, that makes sense, especially, Bryce, with what you were saying in the, in the last episode we talked about this, where you said there were people, there were twos in your church who, like, skipped way over three and hit, like, four, 4.5 and just went right out the door. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest frustrations that I hear, especially from, you know, millennial and younger Christians um, or people who grew up in the church, is that 
the evangelical church doesn't practice what it preaches, right? So what they're articulating there is a, a normative value within evangelicalism, but without the situational and existential uh, to back it up. And so they, they're like, well, who's offering that? Okay, secularism is offering that. And that is attractive. And so again, with the three front, the three front war you were talking about earlier, man, I'm going to use that a lot. <laughs> That's going to stick. Um, we've got to figure out how to, and, and maybe this is what you're asking, Bryce, is like, we've got to figure out how to communicate the normative in good and beautiful ways and, and to, do it, to, to demonstrate it um, in, in word and deed in good and beautiful ways uh, if, we have a, if we have any hope of, of, of reaching that, that cultural shift. Is that a fair, is that kind of what you're asking, Bryson? Yeah, for sure. Sweet. Hey, so Michael, what would you say to threes and fours who I think probably more than the other categories are feeling culturally and even like ecclesiologically homeless and just exhausted right now? I mean, what what hope can you offer for uh, folks in that position? Well, I think wisdom is is always wisdom and character are really important, right? So I think when you have to have a level of confidence of kind of an, an ownership of where you land, right? So if you are self-assured that your perspective on these things um, is in accordance with God's word and God's heart, then there's tremendous comfort that can come from that. I think there's also, we have to know just the rhythms of where to pay attention and lean into, say, national conversations and points where it's time to fast and disconnect from these things, you know? And so that's where um, I think it's important for us to, you know, the, the mission <laughs> is really important. So I think it's, you know, it's easier, you know, you can doom scroll you know, Twitter for the latest things that are, you know, or Facebook for the latest things that are going to make you upset or latest things that are like, oh, this here's exhibit, you know, F for what's wrong today, you know, yeah. or like we can lean into our mission of the church, you know, to the world and the mission to the, you know, of the church to our particular context. And so I think that's where it's really important to um, maintain lots of robust relationships with lost people and stay connected, you know, to those things, honestly, you know, if, you know, Christians are kind of driving you crazy and, or, you know, your, the, your doom scrolling habits are, you know, are destroying your soul, you know, and, and eating away at it like acid. Well, stop, you, you know, if <laughs> so you, you can stop that. You can delete those things. You can take a fast. You can, um, you can limit your time. There's lots of different things you can do with that. But I think it, there's centripetal force and centrifugal. Right. And so centripetal force is, you know, towards the center and centripetal force is is at a right angle <laughs> to your rotation. Right. And so you, if you either have, you know, 100 <laughs> percent centripetal or 100 percent centripetal force, you're going to be missing something. So mm -hmm. in other words, like if you're just like living your your Christian life centrifugally of just, you know, um, eating at the gorging yourself at the buffet table of you know, your local church, your podcasts and sermons and YouTube videos and these different kinds of things. And there's no outward like centripetal mission. 
then you know your soul that's not just it's not a good place for your soul right we have to have that kind of centripetal movement and action because we are meant to be not static we're meant to be moving and we're meant to be taking new ground and so um i think having a healthy balance of those things and so i kind of have like you know kind of different seasons of life and different chapters require different things so you have centripetal you know at zero and centripetal at 100 and just imagine a slider that's between mm. those two things and probably i want to live in the 40 to 60 range of one way or the other at, at most times you know sometimes you need to go to triage and you know so you're, you have a lot of you know a lot more inward and a lot more centrifugal and other times it's time to hit the gas and you know and be more aggressive and maybe you go up to like 70. so but i think you have to have a healthy balance of those things and have healthy reminders of like why am i doing all of this you know and who am i worshiping because i mean that's what all this stuff com comes down to um is what are we worshiping and how is you know how are our affections our actions and our thoughts becoming more be becoming more aligned to the image of, uh, of God. Yeah, that's great. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we could keep talking all day. I hope that we get to continue this conversation, but really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was re uh, really, really a joy. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. Well, that was great to talk with Michael some more about his article. We are going to do a uh, kind of a new segment to wrap up an interview. I think we've done this once before. What just changed? Okay. So Brad and I are going to come back, reflect on the conversation we just had and talk about what just changed for us. Yeah. So I, I'd love to hear what changed for you first, Bryce, because I really like that guy. <laughs> I mean, I just really appreciate both his candor and his... I think it's easy to look at some of this stuff and just analyze the crap out of it and mm -hmm. lose kind of the, the, the pastoral care side of this. And I, it yeah. was just really refreshing. So yeah, well, I love the you? article and I really enjoyed talking with Michael even more super mm -hmm. insightful guy, but yeah, with a pastoral heart too. Okay. So here was my takeaway. When I asked Michael about why does it feel like threes as we've both identified as are so rare um, and wh why does it feel like we're kind of in this can't win situation? And he said that threes are fighting a three front war. Mm -hmm. That just kind of struck me. And actually, it, it sort of occurs to me that it's maybe even a four front war. So the, the three front war that he was talking about is so threes are getting hit by ones and twos from one side, fours and fives on the other side. And there's sort of the non-Christian elements right? Of how, how are we interacting with unbelievers? I actually think as I think about like, how would we apply this in our ministry context? It's a forefront war because mm. I think that we have to create almost like a holding tank for twos, mm. a separate holding tank for fours. We have to deal with un unbelievers. How are we reaching out to non-Christians? But I think we also have to think about the question of how are we leading threes in discipleship, right? How mm. I think it's almost like holding tank for twos and fours, but discipleship for threes. And how do we actually move them out of this posture of like, I'm just getting hit on all sides. And so I feel overwhelmed into a posture of active spiritual engagement and formation. 
Man, yeah, that's 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 really related to what I think my biggest takeaway was. And I, I, I've been chewing a lot on what he said about how threes have got to introduce and bridge the divide between twos and fours. And so kind of like what you're talking about there. But what one of the things I think I'm just starting to realize more and more as we go on, especially after, you know, we're past this kind of acute crisis stage of the pandemic. And now we're going on into this, you know, what how are we managing the implications? It, it makes me ask the question, so why... Why now? Why is this fracturing seem to be happening now? What's different? And why is it so hard for these numbers and, you know, whatever category someone falls in to, to like bear up with one another? And I, the more time that time goes on, the more I think I'm just convinced that this is, this is anxiety, right? Because anxiety just draws down your emotional tank and it makes it harder to to be in community with people who are not as fully aligned with you as maybe other people are. And so you gravitate toward relationships that are defined more by, by, by affinity um, that are easier because you're just exhausted. Hmm. And, and I really like, I, I don't, this isn't fleshed out because it's, you know, what just changed. I'm still processing this yeah. in a lot of ways, but, but I really feel like maybe the task for threes and as well as in our discipleship is how do we resist these divisions in such a way that specifically helps dial down everyone's anxiety. Hmm. Like how, how do we be a non-anxious presence in the midst of twos and fours and, and say, you know what? Hey guys, here's an idea. Maybe I know this is crazy. You have some things in common <laughs> and maybe this is even crazier. I know maybe you need each other hmm. and maybe, Oh, that's why Paul uses the analogy of the body of Christ and our being members of the body of Christ and each with its parts yeah. functioning in that way. That might actually, that could probably include cultural values and political convictions. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I, I just, I, I keep thinking about like, okay, what is the catalyst for that fracturing? how how do we bridge that and i don't know that you know <laughs> i think there's a lot of different ways there and and we got to fill that out but man that is that feels like that's where the the challenge is yeah good stuff hey thanks so much for joining us today uh be sure to hit subscribe if you haven't already next week we're going to be starting our new series on power its use and abuse and the cultural moment that we're living through I am Bryce Hales. I'm here with Brad Edwards. Our theme music was recorded by Danny Rankin, who also designed our logo. Nathan Michelle edits our podcast. We will be back next week helping you navigate life in this insane world that we're living through right here on Everything Just Changed. Everything Just Changed.